Good morning. We're coming to the end of our series called Hang On, and we've been, we've been looking at Luke chapter 12 and chapter 13. Today we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 30 of 13. So uh, I think next week is the last part of our series, and I think Lori's going to bring that message. And then after that, we're going to start a new series um, that's going to take us to Christmas. Christmas, right around the corner. Yay, Christmas. I know. Home Depot already had Christmas trees two weeks ago <laughs> when I went. All right. Uh, let's get right into it. Uh, Luke chapter 13, verse 22. This is how it starts. Jesus, then Jesus, went through the towns and villages, teaching as he weighed, uh, weighed, made his way to Jerusalem. So just imagine Jesus with his posse walking towards Jerusalem. He's been doing that for probably a, almost a year now. So he's been going on this journey towards Jerusalem because he knows that that's his ultimate destiny. Uh, and along the way, we're picking up a few lessons here and there. And today's lesson that Jesus is going to bring us is, well, it's going to be kind of weird, especially if you grew up in the church. Because um, I think, in, especially in American Christian culture, there's certain buzzwords that we picked up, and we already think we know what it means because we heard it so much in church. So if this is your first time or you're, you didn't grow up in church, you're going to be like, oh, I don't know anything about this. And that's good because that's where I want you to be today uh, because we're going to be looking at one word that's going to come up in the next verse that you're going to think, oh, I think I know what that word means, but I have to re-explain to you what that word means. So here we go. Next verse. Someone asked Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Saved. You guys probably heard that word before, Saved. When a Christian says, are you saved, you probably have all these thoughts that come to mind, all these word associations, right? What are some things that you think about when you think about the word saved? We think about where are you going after you die, right? You, we think about, when you think about the word saved, you think automatically, right? This is how our brains are wired. Immediately we start thinking, saved from what? Oh, obviously it means hell, right? Like, yeah, we're, we're, we're saved from hell. Now, while that can be true, in this context, it, this is not what it means. Okay, so whatever connotations and word associations you have with the word saved, I want you to take it out of your brain, wipe your brain cl clean, flush it down the toilet. You know, like that's, okay, because uh, we want to start clean here, because, and this is why. Jesus is the one that came to this earth to teach people about salvation, Okay. Before Jesus came on the scene, there was a Jewish understanding of the word saved. And because the question is coming not from Jesus, but from a person who is Jewish coming to Jesus, we have to understand the question from the perspective of a person who doesn't understand saved as a Christian would. We're looking at the word saved from the perspective of a first century Jewish person, most likely a man. Okay, so a male. So a first century Christian, uh, a Jewish male is asking the question, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, what does it mean to be saved in the first century in Jewish context? Okay, so even before the first century, so for thousands of years before the, this scene takes place, the Jews have this, they, they grew up on these stories of, of people like Moses and Isaac and these people like Abraham. Now, specifically, the story of Abraham starts off like this. There's a man that was called named Abram. He eventually changed his name to Abraham, Abram, who was living his life, you know, as he would. And one day God called him out of his life, okay? And all of a sudden God gave him this mission, which is I'm going to take care of you so you could go and bless the world. I'm going to bless you so you could bless the world. Now, what that means is 
whatever situation you're in, I'm going to save you out of it so you could go to the world and save them. Salvation was not a thing that happened something that after you died. In their context, salvation is something that happened right here, right now. So there's a few things that you have to know about the word, this idea of salvation. Number one, because I think a lot of us who grew up in the church think salvation as, you know, I said a prayer and I'm going to heaven, right? Okay, first thing I want you to know is this. When it comes to salvation or to be saved in, in, in the mind of a Jewish person back then, okay, is that it was not an individual type of salvation. You see, in the Christian circle, maybe you talk to a few of them, right? You're, they will say something like, I pray the prayer, I'm going to heaven, I'm saved, you're not because you didn't pray the prayer, you're not going to, you're right? That, that's how it is. It's like there's a me and you kind of thing. But in the first century Jewish mind, salvation was a communal thing. My nation, when they say I'm saved, they're talking about all of Judea, all of us, all the Jews, we are saved as a nation, as a group. It was rarely seen as an individual thing. Okay, so that's the first thing we have to know. Number two, the second thing is that salvation was not something that happened after we die. It was something that happened right here, right now. And I'll explain that a little bit more uh, in a few seconds, but I'm also going to explain this more in a few weeks when we do our next sermon series. Um, I want to introduce you to a character. His name is Ken Dobson. And Ken Dobson, he is a man who was, lived in Israel for years. He's a Christian. He studied, he studied Judaism because he was so obsessed. So he's like, Jesus, I want to know more about Jesus. And he was a Jewish rabbi. I need to learn more about him. He spent years and years in Israel, and he talked to archaeologists. He talked to you know, Jewish rabbis. He talked to all these people, and he, you know, he wrote many books, and he pastored for a few years about you know, the cultural context of these stories. And this is what he said about this passage. This is what he said. Regarding Luke 13, 23, it's hard to know if Jesus was also hinting at a person's eternal destiny or only at a person's participation in the present reality of the kingdom. This is what he's saying. He's saying, when I read this passage, I don't know if Jesus is making a comment about what happens to us after we die, but for sure we know that he is talking about saving us from this present reality. He's not talking about what happens to us after we die. He says he might be, I'm not sure, but I am sure that he is talking about saving us from the current situation right now. So let me kind of summarize what I just said right now, okay? Salvation, according to these people who asked the question Jesus, okay, salvation is to be rescued from the effects of sin. So let's just say there's a person over here, and he's like a, a king or an emperor or somebody that's of power. This person's sin is that he's greedy, that he is self-absorbed, that he, he loves power. But because of this person's sin, okay, there are people in the villages who are going hungry. There are people over here who don't have, they are powerless. There are people over here who, who, who are in slavery. These are the real-life effects of somebody else's sin. God, throughout history, has been saving these people out of that person's, uh, the effects of that person's sin. God has pulled them out of slavery. God has given them food so they don't go hungry. God has given them shelter. So when the people back then talked about, I'm saved, they're talking about how God has done something right here, right now, not something that happens after we die. Are, are we clear on this? Because until we understand that, we're not going to understand the lesson that Jesus can teach us. And so we have to understand that Jesus... This is what he's doing here, is he's trying to, the question that the person's asking Jesus, okay, is, and if I were to translate verse 23 into my words, this is what it would be, this is what it looked like. Jesus, how many Jews are participating in bringing heaven on earth? 
He says, my ancestors, the Jewish ancestor Abraham, right, God pulled him out and rescued him from the effects of sin, right, so that he could go and rescue other people from the, you know, so then what we call that is bringing heaven on earth, right? So the question that this person's asking is, I am one of many, many Jews, but I'm starting to look around and realize that not everybody is on board with bringing heaven on earth because we have these group of people over here, the Jewish sect right here, it's called the Essenes. They seem to be detached from society. There's another group of people here called the Pharisees. They seem to be maybe condemning people instead of bringing people, you know, closer to God. There's a group of people here, they're called the Sadducees, and they seem to be in works and cahoots with the Roman government. Uh, like, so he's saying, are we all communally saved, Jesus? Are we all bringing heaven on earth? Are we all trying to do the same thing that God is trying to accomplish on earth? And Jesus looks and says, that is such a good question because you, your whole life, assumed that if you are a descendant of Abraham, if you are Jewish, then you are all saved. That's what you assumed, right? So Jesus starts to tell us an answer in the form of a story. Okay, and this is how that story goes. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. We'll come back to that. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. What is he talking about? I ask you a simple question, and he gives us this weird riddle, right? Okay, in order to understand this part of Jesus' teaching, you have to understand what the city looked like back then. Because, okay, so a city had walls because they were afraid that people might attack them, right? And so during the day, that means from sunrise to sunset, they had this big gate open that anybody could enter through. They could have their wagons with their donkeys. They could walk right through. But as soon as the sun goes down, they closed the gate, and they weren't allowed to come in because it was dangerous. So what that, when that happened, they said, okay, when the door closes, you have to go through, the gate closes, you have to go through another entrance, and that is called the narrow door. And you have to go in through that side door, and there it's so narrow that you can't come in with your wagons, you can't come in with your donkeys, you can't come in with your big bags because it's narrow, it's really small. And so every time you want to come in there, you have to either not come in with your stuff, so only you could go in, and you have to park your stuff outside and it might get stolen, or you have to disassemble the wagon or whatever you came with so that you could fit through the narrow gate, the narrow door. Now, that was true about the city back then. Some rich families decorated and architected their homes like the city wall. So if you're rich, you would have a main entrance, right? And when that is closed, you have to go in through the narrow door. Are you guys tracking so far? So here, I, I drew a diagram for you guys. Okay, so you can see in the bottom, there's an open door, an open gate, right? So this is true about the city, and this is also true about some rich families, their homes, okay? And you see that yellow dot on the screen? That would be the Jew, okay? He would be standing there. He knows he could go into the front door, but he chooses not to. Okay, next slide. And so what happens is while, you know, the door is open, People are coming in, right? People are coming in. And the person, the yellow dot right there, is just standing there like, I don't need to go in there. Now, why does the person, the, why does the yellow dot feel like he doesn't have to go in there? Because he knows that there's a narrow door on the side. He knows that even after the gate closes, that he will still have special access into this house. So next slide. So the door closes, right? And he's not panicking. He's like, I'm okay. You know why? I know the guy that who lives there. 
He's my buddy. He's my best friend. You know, we go way back. You know, we have a secret handshake. I don't know what it is, right? But they're like, I know this guy. You guys are, are like, oh, I need to get in before the door closes. Oh, no, oh, no. But me? <laughs> no. I could take my time. I'll just walk around this side, and I'll just go in there and say, hey, yo, buddy, it's me. It's like, oh, hey, come on in, yellow dot. You know, and we'll come in, right? <laughs> he is not panicking about going in because he's counting on the side door to be open for him. So, If I were to translate what he just said, Jesus just said in verse 24, it would be this. It's like, you missed your opportunity entering through the big gate, right? And so he's like, so your plan B better work. That door better be open for you when you get there because, you know, like, your free ticket in is now closed, right? So in the way that this story is set up, the question is, how how many of my fellow Jews are actually participating on bringing heaven on earth? And in this story so far, Jesus is saying, all the people who want to be a part of it are welcome to be a part of it. But one day the door is going to close. And you know who's still outside because they're counting on the side door to be open? It's the Jews. Story continues. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes that narrow door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you. Or where you come from. Back in those days, the place you came from was part of your identity, like Jesus of Nazareth, right? The location mattered. And he's like, I don't know who you are, and I don't even know where you come from, so I really don't know who you are. Remember, he was counting on the narrow door to get in. But he can't get in because the door closed. And when he knocks, he's like, remember, it's me, your buddy, yellow dot, hello. Uh, who, Who are you? So next slide. So this is what's happening. He's like, hey, um, I'm on God's VIP list. I should be able to enter through the side door. Next slide. So he goes to the, to the entrance on the side, but the door closes on him. And he's like, but, but, but I was counting on that narrow door to get in. I want to participate in the things that God is doing. And the response that he hears is this. You're not on my guest list. I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. Jesus continues his story, verse 26. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me. And this is a twist in the story. He says, all you evildoers. Now, this is interesting. From a person who doesn't know who's outside the door, how did you know that this person's an evildoer? Jesus is kind of stepping away from his illustration, and now he's jumping into addressing the person who asked the question. What he's saying is this. All these people, the door was open and all these people were coming in. It's like, I know what you do, sir. Throughout your life, you've been pushing people away from the door. When I had this open call for people to come and join me and being part of the solution for the world, you were discouraging these people from entering that door through, the, through those gates. When I'm wanting unity in this world, you were trying to be divisive. The reason you can't go in through the side door is because you're an evildoer. You did the wrong thing. You did the exact opposite. You weren't part of the solution. You were part of the problem. You kept people away. Why? Well, because they didn't look like you. You're a Jewish person, right? It's like, yeah. What did you do with the Gentiles, the people who weren't Jewish? Oh, I told them to leave. It's like, yeah, exactly. You're an evildoer. What did you do with the people who aren't like you? Like who? You know, like the tax collector. Oh, I told them to go away. Exactly. 
Well, what about, what about the woman, who, the widow? What about her? Yeah, I told her to go her way. Why? Because in a male-dominated society, you need the man to be there too. It's like, you see, that's the problem. This is why you're an evildoer. Because while I was calling people in, you were pushing people away. And then Jesus gives out, dishes out the consequences. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, of gnashing, weeping and gnashing of teeth is a Jewish idiom. That means it's an anger that derives from regret, right? It's like, ah, oh, I should have done this. Ah, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I'm so angry. And you don't even know who you're angry at. You could be angry at God. You could be angry at yourself. But you're just filled with regret. Like, oh, I can't believe, ah, oh, I wish I did this. I wish I ch- could ch- go back in time and change my past. He's like, ah, he's outside the door, he was counting on to be open. He can't get in. And now he's looking back at all the wrong things he's done. He's saying, I wish I acted differently. He says, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth where you, uh, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. So just imagine in that house, he goes to the window. He looks inside. Who's there? Who's there? It's like, oh, that's Abraham. These are my ancestors. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Oh, those... Hey, we're blood. Like, I thought, you know, for being, I was Jewish. I think I belong there, don't you think? And Jesus is like, I don't know you. I don't know where you're from. Sorry, you think blood makes you, like, because you're your family, you're automatically allowed to come in? It's like, no, that's not how it works. What he's saying is this. He's saying, God associates with those who have contributed to the kingdom of God, not because Your mom used to contribute to the kingdom of God. I should be a part of it. No, no. Each individual person has to decide for themselves if they want to contribute to the solutions of the world, right, rather than becoming a problem of the world. Just because my great, 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 great grandfather answered the call of God to be a part of the kingdom of God does not automatically mean that I am part of the kingdom of God. God is gathering the people who said yes to the call and the people who have it, people who said, I don't want to have anything to do with it, God's like, if you don't want to have anything, if you don't want to have anything to do with me, then I don't know you. And then the biggest twist of the story happens in the next verse. This is what he says. People will come from the east, the west, the north, and the south, and will take their place at the feast in the kingdom of God. In the story, the Jewish nation, Israel, is at the center of the picture. And he said, when you peek through the window to see who else is in there other than Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, you're going to find out there's people from the north of Israel, south of Israel, east and west of Israel sitting there. The very people that you pushed out are going to be in the kingdom. The Phoenician that you thought were evil is sitting there at the feast table. The Romans, the people who are bullying you, there's some Romans who are actually good, and they're actually sitting at the table with Jesus. The tax collector who you thought was, you know, uh, betraying your own people. There's some tax collectors who said, no, I want to be a part of the kingdom of God. They're sitting at the table. The widow, you thought, oh, you know, the person lost the, her husband. It must be because he's cursed by God. That woman who said, I want to be part of the solution of the world, that person is sitting at the table inside that house where you cannot enter in. And, the whole, and he's like, I can't believe it. Uh, in other words, this. You'll be surprised that those you excluded from the kingdom of God are actually included. It's a big twist. You see, this person that asked the question couldn't think past his identity as a Jew. 
he said, he said because I'm an ancestor, my ancestors are Abraham, you know, and Jacob, Isaac, because of that, I'm automatically in. And the people who are not part of that family lineage are automatically out. And Jesus says, when you look through the window, you're going to discover that not all people who are part of that lineage are in there. And the people who are outside of the lineage are actually in. The next part, you'll be surprised that those you assumed were included in the kingdom are actually excluded. Your race, your nationality has nothing to do with if you are contributing to the solutions of the world or if you're actually the problem of the, of the world. And then Jesus concludes in verse 30. He says this, Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. He's like, the whole story is now flipped upside down. You thought you were f- at the top of the list in God's priorities of people that he is proud to associate with themselves. And then you hear this story and you're like, no, 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 no. Nobody is automatically in. You have to make a conscious decision to be a part of this movement that God is creating right now. And so the question that he's asking this person who asked the question, right, is also the question he's asking us today, which is who have we assumed exclusion from God's kingdom? When you walk down the street and you look at somebody and you quickly judge, you're like, oh, that person is probably not part of the kingdom of God. Oh, that person isn't here from God. Oh, that person over there, the furthest thing from God. (laughs) If you look at the history of the church, especially Western culture church, which we were a part of, what we discover is people with different social status, people who are poor, in the past, the church has excluded. If you look at our church history, you'll discover that people who have a criminal past are usually not invited into the work of God because the church decided that it's too dangerous for us. If you look at our history and even present, you'll discover that people with a different sexual orientation, that they have been excluded from the kingdom of God. Not because God has excluded them, but because the church has. What you'll discover is that people who have different political stances than you. It's like, if you're a Christian, you must be Republican, right? You know, and but we've excluded people who stand on the other side of the aisle. Not because God, does, God wants it that way, it's because the church has pushed them out of the picture. For some of you, you've excluded people who are of different religion. Oh, that person's Muslim. He could never hear from God. Oh, that person's an atheist. That person could never be a part of the kingdom of God. Maybe even within the circle of Christians, you looked at it and said, that person doesn't believe that the world was created in seven literal days. That, that person must not be a part of the kingdom of God. Oh, that person does, believes that the world is only 6,000 years old. That person could never hear from God. Or, you know, and we, have, we created these rules inside of ourselves, and it wasn't taught to us. It was some, well, I mean, maybe it was taught to us, but it's something that, that we hold in the depths of our souls because we don't want to talk, talk to people about it. But if we were to be honest with each other, we all have these categories we created for ourselves that, that, and it excludes people from being part of the kingdom of God. Not because that's what God willed, but it's because the church has willed it. And Jesus says, be careful. Because if you think with that attitude, you get special access to the narrow door on the side, be careful because the door could be shut on your, on your face because you are actually contributing to the problems of the world, not the solutions. Just because you prayed a prayer saying, Jesus, come into my life, doesn't automatically mean that you are a part of the kingdom of God. 
I know, remember what I said in the beginning? I said whatever version of salvation you save, the word saved they association with, they need to flush it out, you know. Here's the deal. Jesus loves all humanity, not just us. And if you're contributing to the division of the world, if you're di- contributing to, to, to creating hatred in the world, God would say, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm closing the door on you. I thought I knew you, but I guess I don't. And so the question I asked again was, you know, who have we assumed exclusion from God's kingdom? And, and maybe you could have your own version of the answer that I just gave. Like, oh yeah, that group of people, right? But the secondary question to this is this, why? Why have we assumed exclusion of certain groups of people? Now, if you look through the scriptures and find out why these Jews have excluded certain people out, and a lot of people would say, oh, it's because the Bible told us to, right? But if you were to actually dig deeper, what you discover is that it's not because the word of God said so. It's because there's something deeper that's, that's at the heart of it all, which is this, fear. Fear. These people who believe that they were exclusively gods were Jews, were chosen by God, he saved us so that we could save the world. They couldn't fathom the idea that God could choose another group of people because then they were afraid that they were less special. Right? Or, if God chose those people to be a part of our group, I feel less safe. Imagine if an ex-criminal walked in through the back doors. I know how I would feel. I'll be honest with you guys. This is how I would feel. I would feel, I'm okay with that person coming here, but I'm wondering if my kids will be safe. See how fear just settles in? And so I start thinking, well, that person shouldn't be coming to this church anymore because I'm afraid that my kids might be in danger. Right? And so fear becomes the thing. It, it, like, for example, you've been coming to church for years and years and years, and you love coming to church. Why? Because everything that you believe in, everybody here agrees with you. Right? What if somebody else came into this picture who has a different theological stance than you? Right? And all of a sudden, you're sitting around people who don't agree with you, and now you have this fear. What am I, I don't feel comfortable anymore. What am I supposed to do? Uh, um, you know, I'm going to find another church because I'm going to find another church that agrees with me 100%. Did you know that Jesus' 12 disciples didn't agree with each other all the time? There were zealots, people who would kill people who disagree with them, right? And we had tax collectors, people who, dis, who betrayed their own people in the same group. And Jesus is like, this is what the kingdom of God is like. People who disagree with each other, hanging out together, getting along because they have the same love, which is Jesus. fear. We get scared when our comfort is threatened. When some people come in that you feel like, that, that person doesn't look like me. That person's of another race. That person, you know, oh, that, is that person divorced? Oh, you know, I, I can't, you know, like the kingdom of God is a place and it's a movement of people with different backgrounds that come together to become the solution of the world. And Jesus tells this Jewish man, for far too long, you guys have been focused on me, me, me. I am the light of the world. I am the people who, I'm part of the group of people who are going to go and save the world, right? Meanwhile, they're actually accomplishing the exact opposite. And Jesus says, be careful. 
your fear is actually make you, making you into an evildoer. And that's why the door is shut on you. Meanwhile, when you look through the window, you're going to find out the people that you actually excluded are actually in the building feasting with the king of kings. Be careful. This is a very tough teaching, wouldn't you say? <laughs> because fear is something that could go undetected. A lot of times, our fears are the things that, that we, we surround it with other excuses to say, it's not fear, it's not fear, it's, it's my dedication to, to my church that's called, you know, like, you come up with other excuses, but at the heart, if you're honest with yourself, it's fear. And you know what Jesus said about fear? One of Jesus' disciples, his name is John, he wrote a letter about this very thing because he saw that the first century church was starting to crumble because of this idea of fear. And so his name is John. John writes a letter and he says, guys, I see your church falling apart because of fear. And then he writes these words. He says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. When you are afraid of something or someone or a group of people that is not like you, this is what happens, okay? If I see something that's threatening my comfort, threatening my lifestyle, threatening my, my, my enjoyment of being amongst people who I agree 100% with, right? right? All of a sudden, you feel like I need to step it up, become stronger. You do this power dynamic thing where you say, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it difficult for these people to be a part of the kingdom of God. It becomes punishment. He says, when you have fear, the automatic outcome is this power dynamic of punishment. If, you've owned, if you are the most powerful person in the room or in the country or in the world, right, and you feel like there's something creeping up that's, that's not like you, who disagrees with you, what do you do? You suppress them. And he says, when you use fear, as, 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 when the fear creeps into the kingdom of God, it turns into a movement of punishment. So John says, I learned this from my master, you know, Jesus. I followed him for years. This is what I learned. You cannot have fear in the kingdom of God. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. The number one threat to the movement of God is fear. And that's what Jesus was saying to the Jewish man who asked him the question. And then John, in his wisdom, he didn't just stop there. He continued to verse 19. We love because he first loved us. You don't, you don't need to fear. God is still on your side. He loves you, right? We love other people because he has showed us how to love other people. Of all the people in the world, Christians, people who follow Jesus, these are the people who should know how to love other people because he loved you, and now that you experience that love, you should be able to mimic that love to the people around you. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brothers and sisters whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And then he ends with this. He says, and he has given us this command. He's like, this is the one thing you have to get right. This is the, the command from our master Jesus. This is what he's telling us to do. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Somebody comes in saying, yes, I want to be a part of the movement of God. That person's a brother or sister to you now. And if you're looking at that person saying, but we disagree theologically on certain things, or you have a different lifestyle than me, or you, you, know, you and I, we have different political stances, whatever it is, right? He's like, if you are like that towards your brother or sister in Christ, then I don't think you love God. I think we grew up in this culture where it's like all that matters is my love between me and God. 
right? As, as long as me and him are good, we're all good, right? But over and over and over in the scriptures that teaches us, no, 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 no. The way we demonstrate our love to God is by the way we love our brothers and sisters. And if we can't get that right, then there's no way we could get this vertical relationship right. And so the original question was this, Jesus, how many Jews are participating in bringing heaven on earth? His answer, his quick, succinct answer is this, you can't be in the kingdom of God and hate others at the same time. If you have fear, I mean, not to quote Yoda, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. Yeah, I mean, he he speaks truth, man. He's Yoda. (laughs) Perfect love casts out fear. When you come to church, or when you go to life group, and you're having discussion, and you find out right away from these discussions that there's somebody in the group that disagrees with you, or there's somebody in the group that has a different lifestyle than you, or if there's a person that you find out has a really dark past. Or you feel like there's a person that's around you that's done the very thing that you, you swore that you would never associate yourself with. And your immediate reaction is not love, but fear. And you start pushing the person out or you start pushing yourself out. Jesus says, be careful, because love needs to be at the center of this thing called the kingdom of God. So who have we excluded from the kingdom of God? Who are we afraid of that might come in and ruin the party that you created for yourself in church? Who is a threat to you? Jesus says, let's turn that threat into love because perfect love casts out fear. Amen. I know this is a really tough message to swallow, I think. Um, But I think it's necessary. Let's pray.